What's your pleasure? Beer, dear? Prost, and welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food audio podcast produced by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning food journalist and video maker of Sky Full of Bacon, key ingredient for the Chicago Reader, Serious Eats Chicago, and other places where they like a tall, cold one. As you can tell, episode four here is the beer episode. That is, beer and food and how they all go together. I'll talk with Nathan Sears, who's trying to bring back the old German beer hall and make German food hip at the Rather and Doss in Logan Square. And then Jared Rubin, who's opening Moody Tongue Brewing in Pilsen. I'll find out what he means by his concept of culinary brewing. Then I'll talk beer media with Carl Clockers, who's one of the guys drinking beer at the blog of that name, and the author of Chicago Magazine's big roundup of the state of beer in Chicago, which is in the issue that just came out. And finally, this is the non-beer part, we'll solve a mystery from the last episode. So thanks for coming back once again to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the champagne of podcasts. I've just parked on Milwaukee Avenue, amid brew pubs and coffee shops, nail salons and cell phone stores. I hear cars and bikers passing me by, but I also hear something else on this iconic Chicago street. Ghosts. These are the ghosts of a Chicago before tacos and pizza and sous-vide pork belly. A Chicago where the height of enjoyment of an evening isn't cocktails or margaritas, but beer. German, bohemian, Czech beer, served in beer halls and beer gardens. In the old days, ah, the old days, the little bohemia was known all over town for its imported Pilsner beer. Many were the celebrities during the summer evenings of long ago who used to drive out to the west side in a handsome cab and sip those big steins of Pilsner served there. That was John Drury in 1931, looking back at an age already extinct for decades. Yet at 2375 North Milwaukee, in a neighborhood which no more remembers its German or Bohemian history than it does being on the bottom of primordial seas, Nathan Sears, longtime chef and sausage maker at V in Western Springs, and his partner Adam Hebert are planning a new German beer hall called the Rattler. And when they began tearing down the old drywall, they found that the ghosts of that Chicago had been waiting for them all along. Yeah, so this is it. So the space, uh, it's just double wide, 50 feet wide. Um, you know, it has the big 120-year-old mural on it uh, for Bohemian Beer, which is uh, Westside Brewery. Uh, the brewery was in effect from 1880 to 1891, so we were great to find a nice old mural to be the backdrop for the bar. Um, but no, it, it's just a space that gave us a big enough room to be able to do the nice communal tables and really get, like, the open... Um, the open air of, of a beer hall, you know, so we really wanted to explore that. Uh, plus, it's big enough to include our secondary concept, which is a fine dining chef table. Um, so, you know, kind of st- still want to keep with the German theme with it, but, you know, we're, we're going for ultra high-end plush atmosphere and top-notch service, so. So you didn't know the, the mural was there. Did you know it was the brewery? No, the brewery is, was not here. Oh, okay. Um, so what it is is our space when the, when the mural went up, our space was actually not here. This is a parking lot, so that's actually the out old school billboard because okay. you can even see like there's a Sarasota flower is oh, cool. on the other side. So yeah, these were actually uh, the billboards. Uh, there's like a wanted sign back over there and stuff like that. But no, so they basically just came in. They put up um, the posts, you know, put the 
the, the beams across and then framed everything with drywall and it was behind drywall for 80 or 90 years and then we came in to do the demo and tore it down and we're like, holy crap, look at that. Just more uh, reinforcement that this is the space that needs to happen. <laughs> I've been watching German restaurants go away since I've been living in, uh, you know, on the northwest side right. the whole time. Um, but at the same time, so many of the things that we love right now are straight up the German food alley. We just don't want to admit yeah. it. Well, and and that's the goofy thing. And there's a there's a couple things that, you know, the con the concept evolved greatly from where it originally was, and you know, it's it's really taking the flavors of German food and infusing them with something that's contemporary and modern and can stick out. You know, it's people have no problems updating like, uh, you know, like you'll have spaghetti carbonara with like uni on it or something like that. And obviously that's not Italian, but for some reason Germans, and I think it's, you know, maybe the stickler German mentality, but it's like, it is what it is and it doesn't change. And we really want to take it and push it like if I was to open the, the whole thought process if I was sick my background my experience my cooking style and open a restaurant in Germany how would I approach um, the food and the people and still get them to embrace what we're doing but at the same time uh, be able to do my food um, so that, that's really where we want to go and, it, and the other thing too is it boils down to like I know they eat tomatoes in Germany, but you never see a tomato salad on any German menu. And it's like, why, why wouldn't you? You know, I mean, they're, they're great with so many things and even down to like the caraway and the rye and kraut and everything else. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll fit fine. So, you know, it's not that they don't like them. It's just they're, they're stuck on schnitzel and sauerkraut. And, you know, we just want to break that a little bit. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think of what you made. You know, you worked at V for so long, mm -hmm. and the two things that it's associated with, if you think about them, are kind of totally opposite. On the one hand, you've got the farmer's market buying what's fresh, which, right. you know, is a very Mediterranean approach, we think of it. Yeah. And on the other hand, all those Germanish things you were doing, you were making sausage, you were preserving right. things, you know, a lot of uh, sour whatever, yeah. vinegars. Well, and I think, and that's, and that's kind of the odd thing when we looked at it is e even down to like, um, you know, down to the climates, uh, Chicago is very similar to most of Germany, you know? So it's like, you know, the growing seasons are about the same. A lot of the fish they eat is very similar. And, and like you said, out of V, it's like the curing, the smoking, the pickling, the fermenting, the sausages, like everything that we did out there. It's just instead of using a Mediterranean flavor profile or French flavor profile, it's like we're just going to infuse it with the German, you know, and, and it's just it's it's going to fit because it's it's it just is. And at the end of the day, it's fried pork, you know, like what doesn't fried pork go with? All right. So tell me about uh, Das, which is going to be what, a 10 seat or? Yeah. So Das is going to be a 10 seat uh, table. Uh, service one service three nights a week so 30 people a weekend uh, we're gonna offer a seven to eight course tasting we want to keep it on the cheap um, and by that and no no by no means do I mean it's it's cheap to the average person but it's cheap relatively um, we, we want to be able to do it for 80 90 bucks a person um, you know using the best that we can just doing a great tasting menu um, you know, in Chicago, when you, when you're talking about Michelin star tasting menus, you're talking 150 plus. So we want to we want to cut that in half. So what? Uh, how different are the food? Is the food going to be between the two? Um, stylistically, the food will be completely different. So really, what we want to do is we want to we we want to keep with the same mentality. So it will be if you were in Germany eating at a Michelin star restaurant. That's what we want to emulate back there. And with my Michelin background, I feel we can do it. Um, the food will be, you know, a little bit more progressive of plating, but not with the technique. It's still going to be very rooted with a lot of the old school hands-on technique that, that I'm very, that I feel I'm very proficient at. Um, so, uh, but no, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like the weird thing is like when you think about it, like actually reading on the menu, the dishes could be the same. It's just the preparations that go into it and things like that, like in DAS. You know, if, if I have a carrot, a das, it might go through like two or three preparations just to get it to the point where it needs to be. Um, on rather, it's maybe one, two, um, just because 
um, because of the time constraints and the volume and rather it, it things need to be streamlined a little more but still get the love in there and it's you know it's one of those things where it's just you can take the time to have a lot more technical things done in DOS and that's really what we want to do. Beer halls were a huge thing a hundred years ago in Chicago. It exists a little. Our beer gardens exist yeah. a little, but I mean, we—I don't know how long has it been since we really had a beer hall in Chicago. I mean, it's—it's it's been a while. I mean, there's definitely you know the the flood of like pubs and gastro pubs and stuff like that has grown, but I think you know it kind of goes back to everyone shies away from German food because it's not cool and you know it's it's you know it has almost a negative connotation. Um, just because it's it kind of turns people off i mean sometimes just the names are hard to say so you know the it's it's not where the food trend is going but it's definitely where me myself and my partner adam are comfortable because we've really explored it and with our background and heritage and everything else it's like we're just looking at as another restaurant and another thing but you know, we, we kicked around the idea as far as the beer hall doing all communal tables. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, where, you know, we had a couple questions early on about them. And I'm like, look, man, we're not we're not doing it to get more people in. We're not doing it because it's cool. The the concept upholds the ideal. I mean, if we were opening an Italian place, we wouldn't have communal tables. If we were doing, you know, a South African restaurant, we wouldn't have communal tables. But, you know, when you go to Germany, you have beer halls. That's all they have. You know, there's a thousand seats and they're all at picnic tables next to other people. You know, we, we want to do the concept, but at the same time, we got to realize we are opening in Chicago and in America and the dining is, is different here. Well, it's a uh, very specific culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember going to one in Salzburg and you know, the guy, the guy with the, the hand that's bigger than your head is holding yeah. six mugs, you yeah. know, in his grip and you know, the spigot is running continuously and he's standing in like a half inch of beer and just, you yeah. know, throwing them at people. Yeah. It takes that kind of, crowd and volume to to I mean it's almost like a you know a rock concert or something you need all the people there for the vibe to happen right no and that's just it and I think we'll definitely have that vibe here because yeah I mean the first six people that walk in the door it's going to be hard to get that vibe but you know we're going to be delivering great food so even though it won't have that that beer hall vibe when it's a little when there's a little bit of downtime at least you know in our eyes it will be a great restaurant nonetheless so um, but every restaurant is, is missing the vibe that they want when they're that busy. So, no, I mean, a lot, a lot of it just boils down to really embracing our past, Chicago's past. And at the same time, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's feeding a niche. And we found the niche that we want to feed. And over the past year, it really seems like there is a little bit of emotion to go that way. The East Coast is between uh, New York opening places like Radagast and Philadelphia's open a beer hall or two and and out in LA they have uh, Worst Coochin and things like that there's definitely like little things here and there and you, if you walk around Logan Square and, and look at patios it's like every other table has the Stiegel Rattlers you know last year we had to explain to everybody what a Rattler was and now everybody's drinking them in the city. Adler and Doss hope to open this fall at 2375 North Milwaukee. As head brewer at Goose Island Clybourne, Jared Rubin was the highest profile beer maker in town, sometimes collaborating with top chefs like Rick Bayless or Stephanie Izard to create an incredible series of one-off beers that range from traditional styles to very experimental combinations. In January, he left Goose Island to launch his own project. He recently revealed the name, Moody Tongue, the location, it's in Pilsen, and the approach, which is, he says, treating beer with a culinary perspective. I asked him about all of that by phone. I've been exploring food and beer since culinary school at the CIA. You know, that's where I, I first started a brew club and, uh, you know, bringing in different breweries and kind of, what you know, experimenting with beers as a pairing ingredient, as an actual ingredient in food and just enjoying it on, on its own. And, um, you know, it, it's really from there that I, I started 
you know, seeing a lot of the opportunity and flexibility with beer and food. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's where the birth of this, that's where the birth of culinary brewing really happened. And from there, you know, I, I went on to cook. And while I was cooking, you know, I started baking a lot with beer, you know, using it in, you know, Bavarian mousses and, and cheesecakes. And, you know, I love the fact that you didn't lose the integrity of the flavor profiles. A lot of times when you're, you're cooking with beer, usually reducing it or brining it, you know, you lose any of the actual, the, the integrity, the, the malt profile and hop profile of the beer. So, you know, it, it was, you know, it was a great way to see how beer could fit in uh, on menus, you know, as pairing and as, as a food ingredient. So from there, you know, my curiosity, I just, I couldn't get enough of beer. And after a while, you know, I realized that I needed to actually learn how to create this because falling in love with it, um, which led me to, you know, doing a couple stages at Chelsea Brewing Company in New York, and then eventually I knew that I had to go to brewing school. Um, and all throughout brewing school, you know, I'd be thinking about food. You know, when I was trying these different style guidelines, I'd be you know, thinking about what dishes it would go to, you know, Pilsner or something like really crisp, with something very flavorful like Indian food or Thai. And, uh, you know, when I first got my gig... Uh, even at Rock Bottom, I emailed all the, the CIA alum in the city, you know, trying to get them into a brewery um, to brew together. I just, I did, I saw so many similarities between brewers and cooks that I figured, you know, the best way for me to make the most flavorful beer um, that really, that really takes advantage of, of, of great ingredients would be to get chefs in there and to really break down the wall between brewer and, and chef. And that's what this brewery is all about, you know, really forging that connection between brewers and cooks and, uh, you know, making beer that kind of uses those culinary methodologies and techniques um, to integrate, you know, to incorporate ingredients into, into my beers. And that's my style, culinary brewing. Now, I mean, a lot of us have obviously cooked something with some beer in it, but it's usually something, I guess, that by your standards, would sort of brutalize the beer <laughs> by the end. I mean, it sits in chili for several hours as part of the mix or something like that. So what kind of thing are you talking about that, that you would you would use the beer that it would sort of retain its its integrity? Right. I, I think really the key is to find balance. You know, at the end of the day, we, uh, you know, one of the, my favorite beers I ever made was when we did a white truffle bitter. And obviously this is, you know, a big exception. Um, because, I mean, truffles are, are rare and, and just kind of taking on a style like this, you, you would really need to, first of all, understand the dish. And there's nothing better than having like a very simple pasta, you know, with brown butter and then you shave truffles. And anyone who's ever experienced that, it's all about that beautiful aromatic. But once you actually start tasting the pasta and the truffle, you know, it, it, it's not as intense. They're just all the flavors really are balanced and come together. And so with the beer we made, I used Maris Otter malt, which had like a nutty characteristic, which is very similar to brown butter. And then we used truffle, which provide like this strong aromatic, but the, the, the actual base beer was an English bitter. You know, that's how it would equate to the dish where you get the strong aromatics of truffle, but the beer itself tasted like an English bitter, which just happened to have a nutty characteristic, which you would find, and brown butter and pasta. And so over the last couple of years, like, you know, getting to focus on on ingredients that I find at the Green City um, and working with chefs from chef collaboration years, and even before that culinary school, I've really been able to hone my craft of understanding how to use the ingredient, where to source the ingredient, and then what sort of technique to apply the ingredient within my beers. Um, and, it, and it's become very, very successful. I remember at Goose Island, I mean, you just... You made something new, you know, a couple times a week or whatever it was. Tell me, like, some of the things you're thinking about making. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and it was such a great opportunity experience there to kind of really grasp what certain ingredients did. But some of the things I'm making, um, you know, I'm, I'm, th I'm going to make a bubblegum Belgian blonde. I'm going to make a brandied blackberry Belgian double. Um, I'm going to be making a... Uh, gingerbread chocolate milk stout, um, a nectarine IPA, uh, a watermelon wit. You know, some of the ingredients depend on the season and some don't. So we're definitely going to be 
exploring the best ingredients that we can incorporate into our beers. Okay. So I have to ask, bubblegum, how do you get bubblegum flavor? I mean, the rest of them are actually things that you can just put in there, but how do you no, get bubblegum flavor? Bubble fl- the bubblegum plum is actually a plum. It's oh, a varietal. Oh, it has, it's the plum. Yeah. Okay. I, I just saw you, you know, unwrapping uh, packages of flair <laughs> and no. thro- throwing the Bazooka Joe no. comics away. I don't know. Do you think that's that's something people will be able to handle? They go to a bar, they order the new thing, and it turns out to taste like carrot or nectarines or things like that? Listen, I experimented with carrot once. I don't see myself okay. experimenting with carrot, carrot again. Yeah, we can remove carrots and peas. I'm not, you know, I, I'm always open to exploring an ingredient, but if it's not, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't make sense, you know, I'm not one to really put something out there for the sake of putting something out there. It's got to be delicious. And, uh, you know, if, if it is a nectarine IPA, I guarantee you it's going to be a delicious, flavorful nectarine IPA beer. And, you know, Mike, I don't make weird beers. I've never made weird beers. It's not something I'm into. If, what I like to do is, you know, create familiar ingredients, you know, in, incorporate them into beers. And what they taste like is, you know, the best of all worlds, you know, refreshing nectarine and, you know, really nice citrus aromatics in an IPI. My sort of... Uh pet peeve or whatever you want to call it about beer right now is I just feel like everybody hops everything to death. There's, you know, you know that's not me. And, and to me that it seems so self-defeating to these other flavors because everything's just going to taste like cascade hops or whatever. Um, <laughs> so what, what's your, what's your position on the hop question? I guess is, is my question. You know, I, I agree. It's not fun. If you can't taste anything, food or beer, related after consuming a beer that's too hot. You know, what's what's the point of that? It's like dumping a bottle of Tabasco sauce, you know, in your dish. It, yeah, great, it tastes it tastes hot, but there's there's no balance, there's no layers of flavor. You know, you, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. So, I mean, the way I use hops is for flavor and aromatics, but definitely not to ruin anyone's palate. You know, if, if you want bitterness, you can find it in a lot of other places, but you won't find it in my beer. Now, you're opening this place, uh, your brewery down in Pilsen, um, and, yes, I, and you're going to have a tap room, like everyone's going to have a tap room, and you're talking so much about food. Is there going to be a food side to that? You know, I, I, I'm keeping an open mind. We don't have a food site for, that, uh, for the tasting room yet, um, but, you know, food is just as much of a passion as beer for me. What I wanted to do and what was really important to me is that we focus on one thing first. And that one thing I wanted to focus on was beer. And then we grow it. You know, I wasn't trying to bite off more than I can chew here. Um, you know, and I wanted to make sure the brewery was, was creating excellent beers before we started looking in any other direction. Okay. Because it seems like some of these things, you need the food to kind of bring the whole package to life. But I guess you can do that with collaborative dinners and things like that, too. Yeah, and you know what, Mike, to be completely honest with you, a lot of my beers sound like food just because that's my background, but they really, I mean, they can be enjoyed on their own and usually are. I just happen to think about food when I when I think about beer. They just, you know, hand in hand. But for most people, I, I think really just drinking the beers on their own are going to be, you know, incredibly satisfying. It's a meal in a bottle. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it really is. You know, the thing is, it's this isn't so foreign. Like people like you and I that are that think about you know flavors and aromatics all the time. We do this anyway. Um, I I don't see a like for me beer is food. You know, we we use our our hands and take raw ingredients and create something that people consume. The only difference is brewers intoxicate people. Yeah. You know, but. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, every time, you know, we smell a beer, we're thinking about, okay, what are we getting? Like, is there a pineapple in there? Is there a little bit of mango? And then on the palate, you know, um, is that a little lemon? Um, you know, is there some of that sexy equestrian barnyard funk? <laughs> right. right. It, it, it's, I mean, these are things we do every day. We just don't talk about it. You know, I, I, I love, like, the name really describes what I'm about and what so many other people that I respect and admire about. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's really a moniker, a nickname for people, you know, that, that think about flavors and aromatics and talk about it. And you don't have to, but anyone with a discerning palate, anyone who thinks twice, you know, when they order their beer, like, this is for you. You know, these beers are, you're going to love these beers. 
Moody Tongue Chicago Brewing Company hopes to open around December. You can follow its progress at MoodyTongue.com. A version of this interview previously appeared at The Reader. Beer of the Grenadier. Here's to the bitter made the good old way. Highland, old style, taste and mellowed for many a day. Highland, old style. What is the state of beer in Chicago today? The new issue of Chicago Magazine manages to come up with enough breweries to call out the 62 best beers in Chicago, which suggests that the state is pretty great. How did it get that way? To answer that, I sat down, over a beer, with the author behind Chicago Mag's piece. Here we are in the back room at Four Moons, which is a neighborhood corner tavern, at least to me. You can't get much more Chicago than that. So... I'm here with Carl Clockers. Hello. And uh, he knows way more about radio than I do, so we're going to try not to, <laughs> not to embarrass the hell I'm, out of I'm me. sitting here eyeballing the levels as we speak. All right, so here's mentally, my... Mentally rolling back the, the faders. So here we are with our beers. I think we wound up with the same thing. Revolution Brewing, a Chicago brewery. Yeah. Uh, anything that's on tap for four bucks is usually a, a decent go-to, especially when it's made probably about... Mile and Three miles in that direction, <laughs> yeah, tops. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the Chicago beer scene is just more active than you could hit with a stick. I, and, seriously. And you are on top of that because you are in Chicago Magazine this month. Besides your regular blog, Guys Drinking Beer, which right. you do with uh, Ryan Hermes is the other guy that's mostly part of it with me. We also have a downstate correspondent named. Andrew, who kind of keeps an eye of, on uh, on things down there, but for the most part, it's me and Ryan taking care of things like beer politics and beer legislation, and trying to keep a handle on all of the breweries that are opening in Chicago and the suburbs, and you know, it, it extends to Wisconsin and Michigan somewhat. But for the most part, we try to keep our general focus around here, which is. About as hard as it's ever been in the last... I mean, we've been doing this for three years, and I've been writing about, you know, beer and food for longer than that, and drinking it for even longer than that, and I can't... Like, putting together the the Chicago Magazine piece kind of really helped put that into perspective, just because it was next to impossible just to nail down, like, a number on any given day. I mean, it seems like one every two weeks... Someone's opening up a tap room. I mean, the, as of the moment that we're sitting here talking, Urban Legend in Westmont just announced that they were going to open their tap room as of this Friday. So how did it get so easy to open a brewery? I mean, I moved up here when Goose Island was this brand new thing, and the Beta Brow guy was trying to get it going. And you know, wow, that's, that, was, that goes back a ways. Yeah, yeah, that was actually one of my clients at an ad agency was Beta Brow. <laughs> so, um, so how do you feel now that it's been around for a year now? Yeah, that was that was a weird, weird thing for that to come back for me, and I'm really hoping a lot of my other clients stay dead. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I mean, so there's so much activity. How? Why is there so much activity? I think a lot of it is just because you know, now now is the time for that. You know, we've we've spent so that, much time. That was not I, a convincing <laughs> answer yet. I it just seems to be like you know. When you build momentum for something, it's easier for more people to, to pick up on that. And being in a place where we've got Siebel that people can just like walk to as opposed to travel halfway across the world to take part in. And I mean, I, I do go back to the, the legislation that kind of created the, the craft brewer's license. And at least in the state of Illinois said, this is what you need to do. This is what, you know, this is the structure. And you can go out and you can bring your beer to places and that'll be a good start was it in 2010 or 2011 that uh that they signed the the craft brewers law into i whatever it was there were so many people that were in the run-up and then as soon as that happened i feel like it was just kind of like waving the green flag that says 
all right, you know, the state has said that this is a thing, so now you should all go do it. Obviously not as easy as this, but if you can fill out a form and, <laughs> uh, you know, say that, you know, I talked to some distributors, but uh, I'm just going to go on my own for now and, you know, kind of build your own little brew house, you can get something going. I mean, the guys for, uh, uh, I think it's Flesk out in Lombard are brewing on, you know, essentially something just a little bit grander than a home brewer setup. Uh, and, you know, that's essentially what a lot of this is, is just homebrewers that their hobby just got too big for itself. And they had to either do something with it or stay at the same level. And I guess if you have the wherewithal to kind of go out and have it be a grown-up thing as opposed to something you do in your kitchen or your garage on a weekend, then I, I consider all of us a little bit more the richer for things like that. Yeah. So, if you had to think about what's a Chicago style, what, what, how would you describe things in this part of the country? Is there any general consistency about how people approach it? I've been asked this before, and I haven't really been able to come up with a good answer, and that's just because there's so much variety, you know? There's, there's people that have their own, you know, their, their own kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, marketing position. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily turn into, oh, we only do these kinds of beers. Uh, everyone's just trying to make things that are good and interesting and tasty and unique, you know? Um, you couldn't say that Chicago beer lumped into one big thing is any more the lagers that Metro is doing as opposed to someplace that just opened like 1090 who's only focusing on big massive 10% and up beers. I mean, if anything, from the, the Chicago Magazine piece, the one thing that we can really point to and say is ours and spread out to everywhere is uh, something like Bourbon County Stout, where before they did that, it wasn't a thing, and now uh, we sit here on a day where the festival of barrel-aged beers sold out in three minutes yeah. for like 2,200 <laughs> tickets. And, like, if you didn't click order within the span of, like, 180 seconds, you were, you know, it was gone. And that's it. So, I think if I had to put my finger on something, that would be it. Yeah, well, that raises a good question, which is how do you make it unique? To some extent, I mean, beer's more diverse than, like, making bread, but there's sort of a similarity in that anything you make at home is pretty good, but you're not... You know, you're not reinventing bread every time you make bread. And how do people make their beers stand apart? It's also an interesting question because I feel like sometimes the things you can make at home are better than the things that you can make on like a massive scale. Like you go and you have somebody's homebrew and it's like, wow, this is spectacular. And it's because, you know, they're, they're taking a chunk out of their paycheck and just dumping it into a five-gallon kettle. And cost be damned, they don't have to worry about, you know, justifying its bottle price on a shelf or on a draft line somewhere and that's why they're dumping in a ton of ingredients and getting some really really good stuff but all this gets back to the idea that you know some people do have pretty established visions for themselves and I think you see that in places like Revolution where they have this core idea that you know it goes back to the name you know, that Revolution Brewing everything they do goes back to the idea of some sort of revolutionary spirit in the beer names you know they've got the Eugene Porter for Eugene Debs and the working woman uh, Brown and things of that nature and I feel like if you can establish a thread that goes through all of your products and you know kind of build an identity about it, it establish that you're showing thought in a way that's not just what's going into a barrel of sugary water where you're pouring pieces of flowers into it it all plays in and you know now that we're in a point where we have dozens and dozens of breweries in Chicago it's not really just enough to have great beer anymore unfortunately how do you feel that the beer scene is covered I mean you you guys are trying to cover both taste and, and legality uh, you know kind of the news and culture side of it do you feel I don't know what else is out there I think you know it's it's interesting that we kind of started this by talking about the, the different identities that that breweries have and the people that are covering beer in Chicago all kind of have their own identity as well um, 
you've got us that kind of focuses on the the, the wonky legal stuff and yeah, and we've kind of dropped off on normal reviews, but like we, Ryan has an amazingly expansive cellar that you know you pull something out, taste it six months later, see how it goes. It's like I can't, not that I want to ring my own bell too hard on this one, but I don't see many other places doing that with the extent that we do. Uh, and then you've got Good Beer Hunting, which does an amazing job at, at showcasing breweries. Brewers, people in the industry, little swaths of things, telling a story in a much more kind of prosaic way than we do. Ryan and I kind of come from a more journalistic background, so we kind of just boil it down to just the facts and here's what we think about it and that's about it. Whereas, you know, his focus is completely different, whereas you take someone like Phil Montoro at The Reader who's just decided to just do beer and metal and it works because he's really good at, you know, the tasting notes are there. It's not... It's not a gag, you know, it's a real thing. And then there's some metal along with it. And there's, if you've ever hung out with a lot of brewers or been to a Dark Lord day, there's certainly a decent amount of metal crossover in the brewing community. A certain heavy metal aspect to it. Yeah, yeah and then and then you've got uh, uh, Josh over the Tribune, who, who is definitely a very Tribune-esque sort of writer, for lack of a better term. And, and he fits that, that mold well. And he gets stories that, that, that we don't get, but he brings them to the reader in a style that... You know, it's not just, hey, uh, here's a weird ale that you should try because, hey, isn't this weird, you know? It's it's definitely, you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a little bit more thoughtful, perhaps. Uh, and then, you know, even places like Cranes are writing about beer and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, everybody's got their own niche to fill. And I can't think of anything that's exactly missing right now except for maybe like a beer video podcast of some sort well the, uh, the beer temple guy does his oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah and he's he's doing reviews from like like two a week i think like and i think he's got some banks so he can just kind of like pull those out of the cellar as it were yeah. uh but Right, I mean, he's done an incredible number of these videos of him talking about beers, like 150 of them or something crazy like that. Yeah, and, and he was as, part as of... As we do episode four here. <laughs> <laughs> and he was part of the panel that we put together. We actually did the, the tasting panel of all those 18 beers at the Beer Temple. And I, if, if you ever want to watch someone just talk about a beer and just like dissect it and just slice the layers away, right. it's, it's astounding what some people can do just within the the kind of boundaries that you know there's uh there's the cicerone certification program where you learn to taste beer and recognize things in beer and then the beer judge certification program which teaches you to taste beer and rank it against all these other things and just you know the the chemistry that people know about that goes into this stuff it's not just you know the way i look at it is like this you, you can be a, a great you know a great chef and you can be a great like electrical engineer or you know mechanical engineer. You really have to put those two skills together to be a really good brewer. Well, you you already answered one of my questions, which was going to be what's what's missing on our scene. I don't know what uh, is there anything that you you would like to see more of or any direction that you wish. I f I feel like we will have accomplished something when I can point to every neighborhood in Chicago and name you the brewery that's there. Um, obviously, we're a little bit skewed towards the Lincoln Square, uh, Ravenswood, North Center area, as yeah. I've pointed out a few times on the site. Uh, you know, and then you've got uh, Pilsen certainly turning into something with what Jared's going to open down there. And, uh, you know, you can certainly play, point to places like Bedford Park for Five Rabbit and... Uh, place called Slapshot is going to be opening up in Little Village, which I'm really excited about. But, you know, the day that I can kind of take out a real estate map and find out wherever they've drawn their lines and just kind of like put a little pin inside of each one of those and say, all right, that's that's their brewery. I think that'll be an exciting time. I also like the idea of like, you know, we've, we've watched the guys from Guile work on their, on, you know, their, their community supported brewery idea. And I think it's, they're finally getting to the point where they're getting ready to open their retail space and it's a cool idea to be able to sign up for a, a subscription of growlers for six months or a year and just 
stop by your neighborhood brewer and get a bucket of beer and take it home. I, I really like that idea, uh, you know, which is kind of along the same lines as, you know, your neighborhood butcher, which is, you know, for me it's jeans in the Lincoln Square meat market and, you know, you've got your, your bakery and, and all of your little local places again and I see no reason why that shouldn't extend to the, the art of brewing. So what's coming up that you're excited about? I mean, there are a lot of things that are coming up. The big one, obviously, is Lagunitas' giant thing uh, that they're building down in that movie studio on the south side. Um, yes, the, the date of which keeps getting pushed back. Yeah. <laughs> month yeah. by month by month. But, you know, that's when you're building the biggest brewery in the Midwest and, you know, one of the biggest in the country. And most certain stuff, deadlines are going to get bypassed, you know. Most of your stuff has to come on a boat from Germany anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, you know, that's that's going to be a real dividing line, I think, in Chicago brewing. You know, there's the time before Goose Island, the time after Goose Island. There's going to be the time before Lagunitas shows up, and the time afterwards, and that won't necessarily show up in Chicago immediately because. We kind of already have all the Lagunitas that, that we want. I've never walked out to a store and said, boy, I'd really like some Lagunitas and wasn't able to, to find something. Yeah. It's not just going to be in corner stores in my neighborhood, which is awash with beer. Yeah. It's going to be in neighborhoods, you know, in like East St. Louis and stuff like that. And, yeah. and hollers in Kentucky and, and things of that <laughs> nature. So, yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be a lot different. I can't think of anything really on the... The small side, that's small being a relative term, other than, you know, I, people are really excited to see what Jared's going to do with, with Moody Tongue. I think now that Off Color is in the world, I think that's what a lot of people were really looking forward to seeing what those guys could do. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, those guys both grew out of Goose Island. Uh, at this point, it's just kind of back to the exploration phase, where it's like, you know, it was it was... You had your half acre and your metro and your revolution, and then you had a, a burst of people that are now here, and now we're back into kind of the, a lot of people are getting ready again, you know? And there's just gonna kind of be another, I don't know if it's the third wave or even the fourth wave at this point of, of Chicagoland and Illinois brewers. But, uh, you know, I, at, at some point, I fully expect someone to be able to open up a place in Chicago and never have to serve a beer that's brewed more than 60 miles away. It's uh, You can do it now, um, and you you wouldn't even be that limited. It'd just be a matter of, of getting it to yourself. I feel like there are places where the list is heading there pretty quick, yeah. Yeah, I you know, I, I, I like being in a place where I am where I can walk to Fountainhead and half of the list is... Uh, you know, local, the other part of it is collaborations and they like to stick to the German side of things too, so they have that, those around. Even, you know, uh, one of my favorite bars in the entire world is the Hooten Bar, and for as long as I've lived in Chicago, it's just been, you're gonna have a German beer when you come right. in here, and if you don't, if you order a Corona, they'll put it in a bottle and they'll like, they'll slide it away from themselves in, in <laughs> disdain. But they've got, they've got Revolution on, and they've got Three Floyds on, and Part of me mourns that a little bit, but the other part of it really kind of celebrates the idea that, you know, things do change. All right, well, let's let's talk a few recommendations. Tell, tell me some things, either beers or bars, that maybe are a little under the radar that you think people should check out more. I... I know that we've hosted a couple events there, and obviously I'm somewhat biased when I say this, but I really do think the Green Lady deserves more attention than it gets. I think if it had opened just a couple years before it did, it would be heralded along the lines of, say, like a map room. I think if more people recognized that the Gingerman is probably one of the best bars on the East Coast, in New York City where, where Melanie, the proprietor, she used to run that and the Green Lady is really kind of like taking that and picking it up and putting it in Chicago. And I, I love the fact that it's just a tavern. It doesn't have a kitchen. It will sell you a bag of nuts if you want it. Uh, <laughs> but if you're going there, you're going there to drink beer. And, and that's about it. I, I kind of regret the fact that every year that I've been in Chicago, the, the number of neighborhood taverns, like the one that we're sitting in right now, it just kind of keeps dwindling. Um, and I think that the idea of just having a place that you can just go and drink a few good beers and enjoy that is a good thing. 
Um, I was just at Local Option the other day. I think the things that they do are incredible because they don't particularly care about what other people want. They seem to just put on what they like, and if they don't find it available, they make it, you know? So, and, you know, the, the, the stuff that they get, even I walk in there and I'm like, I have no idea what half of these things are. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't even point to the country on, on a globe where it comes from, some of these things. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, I, they have a pretty good soundtrack there, too. <laughs> uh, I would say those two are the first ones that come to mind, but, like, I, I also like places where you can walk in and just buy an old style for two bucks and hang out. You know, those places are, are just as deserving of time and money spent as really fancy places that have, you know, bottle lists that are 200 deep. Uh, well, there's a good question. Do you feel like the city is more sympathetic these days to yuppie and hipster bars and less so to the traditional, you know, blue collar working class tavern? I mean, could you even open one of those in Chicago now? Without irony? Man, I, within a three-mile radius of, say, North Avenue and Lakeshore, I don't think so. I think, you, I think that's why you need to kind of protect the ones that you have. Uh, I mean, in, in the conversations that I've had with, with Alderman Pilar, it's been a lot of, you know, I, we don't want someplace on Lincoln Avenue that's going to open up and sell you know, 40s for a dollar ninety nine, and you know, if if you can go around and, and get the neighborhood on, on board with the idea of, of a beer store uh, that's going to cater to a different kind of audience than just like a convenience store, then we can get on board with that. I think that's, I think the way of going about that is a positive one, just for the sole fact that before that was happening, the door was closed to it entirely. Um, Kind of, you know, the same thing with the Half Acre Tap Room. Um, would you have ever expected someplace in Chicago to get a brand new license that was just for pouring alcohol and didn't have a kitchen in the back coming up with dogs and burgers, even at the slightest? I think that, you know, before they started talking about that, I didn't really expect that to ever really happen again. I always kind of assumed that it was going to be basically brew pub or nothing, you know, kind of like the, the revolution model. Uh, but I mean something that's just a place to open up its doors and, and just have a bar and just like a shot in the beer joint uh, probably not around here <laughs> sadly so the state of our beer is strong <laughs> it's strong yes it's, it's very safe to say that it is, it is very strong it is as strong as it has ever been if not stronger and stronger every day. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it's never been a better time to be a beer drinker in Chicago right now. Uh, even, even better than 1887 or something. Yeah, I you know, they weren't making hibiscus ales in 1887. <laughs> they they weren't, you know, you you showed up and you got your your beer poured into a bucket and you went home and you drank it and you fell asleep and you went to the coal mines again. Yeah. It wasn't as much fun as it is right now. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I challenge anyone to dispute yeah. me on that. Slaughterhouses. Uh, we have slaughterhouses here in 1887. Yeah. Not it, coal mines. So you know, six of one, half a dozen <laughs> of the other. Someone was finding coal somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. You are Carl Clockers of guysdrinkingbeer.com. Thank you, sir. And I imagine people can find that on their own. So. Yeah, if you're looking for us on Twitter, drop one of the G's because we couldn't fit it. It's guys oh. drinking beer. Drinking it's, beer. Yes, it's a little bit more, uh, more casual on the tweets. Carl's bar recommendations were the Green Lady, which is at 3328 North Lincoln in Roscoe Village, and the Local Option, which is at 1102 West Webster in Lincoln Park. There will be more links in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. So, I'll solve a mystery from the last episode in a moment. But first, remember it encourages me to keep this going if you subscribe at iTunes. So please look for the link for that at skyfullofbacon.com. And if you're here for the first time, there are past episodes there as well, with interesting things like our in-depth exploration of tiki culture. So check those out, too. Speaking of past episodes, 
Last time I spoke with food writer Jason Kessler, a former Chicagoan, who described one of the dishes that he comes back to Chicago for. I don't know if you're aware of this, Mike, but they they have golden shrimp and, and golden sauce, which is a, a Chicago thing, but a lot of people don't know it as a Chicago thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, tell me about it. There's, I, I, It's like almost impossible to describe. It's basically this egg custard, this like sweet egg custard that they steam on top of shrimp or scallops or kind of any seafood you want it on. And it's the best. Well, my friend and former LTH Forum co-manager Michael Morowitz knew exactly what Jason was talking about and where it comes from. He called it a custard. I don't think it's a custard. I think it's really basically very, very thick mayonnaise. In the 80s, if you were an eight-year-old boy living on the north side of Chicago or the north shore of Chicago, you went to Ron of Japan for your birthday. Teppanyaki, flipping crap in the air, uh, and their appetizer for almost every meal was butterfly shrimp on the, on the flat top with, I would say, a healthy two tablespoons of this absurdly thick, disgusting mayonnaise on every single piece of shrimp, two tablespoons per shrimp, became wildly popular and I think imitated across the North Shore by places, I think he mentioned Tsukasa. I think there were two or three others around Northbrook, Deerfield, Glenview that started imitating it because it became so popular. And it's funny to me, nowadays I've got friends who are... 35, 40, 45, who grew up going around Japan for their birthday and fondly remember that stuff and still happily eat it, although it tastes like cheap oil, egg yolks, and a tiny bit of maybe rice wine vinegar and yuzu. It's disgusting. Thanks for coming back yet again. And thanks to all my guests this time, Nathan Sears, Jared Rubin, Carl Clockers, Jason Kessler unwittingly, and Michael Morowitz. Thanks to Four Moon Tavern on the corner of Roscoe and Wolcott for letting us use their ambiance. The theme music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks with more. This was episode four. <laughs>